Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you did send your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. What a blessing that is. What a blessing you gave us your word to open and study. Thank you for the time that you've led us in worship with the worship team this morning for the the wonderful songs of praise we've been able to sing to you. Lord, I hope that has set our hearts right to continue to worship you as we now open the word. So, Lord, have your way with us today. Set aside the busyness of the last week and the anticipation of the busyness of the next week. And, and, and just help us to steady our hearts and quiet them to hear from you today. And it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, worship team. What a, what a great bunch of songs to, to sing in and continue to prepare ourselves for worship in the Lord. And it's an exciting time every time we get to open God's Word, every time we get a chance to, to see what He has for us. And, and we've been studying through Genesis, and, and so Pastor Chris took us through the, the first part of Genesis chapter 4 a couple of weeks ago. And last week we talked about the last two verses of Genesis chapter 4. And, and it's drawing a distinction. So Genesis chapter 4 is drawing a distinction between the line of Cain, which is in the first 24 verses, and the, and the line of Seth, which is in the last couple verses. And we heard from about Seth. And, and verse 25 and verse... One, start very similar with Adam having relations with his wife. And those relations led to children. In verse 1, it led to the birth of Cain. In verse 2, it led to the birth of Abel. And we know that Cain was gave in to sin. He gave in to sin and he killed his brother Abel. And then it talks about God sending him out. And verses 16 through 24 really tell us that's all the glimpse we have in what happened to Cain. And, and we know that, that within seven generations, we had Lamech. And Lamech was, was singing his song of the sword, if you will, and talking about the fact that he killed a man for wounding him and a boy for wounding him. And, and that was sort of the, the culmination of the line of, of Cain in, in that whole deal. Culture went up. I mean, we added music, we added instruments, we added implements, we added weapons, and we changed, we added culture with the line of Cain, but we also saw evil unfurled in the line of Cain. And then in verses 25 and 26, we see Seth on the, on the horizon now. And, and, and of course, Eve is very excited about this because she, she realizes that in the beginning when she had set at Cain, she claimed Cain for his own. I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord, but he's mine. And now the change in her heart attitude was Seth, where God has appointed Seth to replace Abel. A beautiful picture of that. And then Seth had a son, and a son was born to him, and his name was Enosh. And they began, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And we talked about that last week. And we're going to look further into the Bible now on people calling upon the name of the Lord. And, and what does it look like? Some pictures of, of things that God showed us. And we're going to start in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. And we catch up with Abram. Now, most of us know Abram as Abraham and his wife Sarai as Sarah, because we, we come, a lot of us think about Abraham after God has spoken to him and moved him out of his home. But this is the part where he was still Abram. 
And the Lord has come to Abram. Now, remember, Adam and Eve were moved out of the east side of the garden. And then Cain moved further east, which was more towards Babylon. And, and God was moving him over there away. But now God has come to Abram and he has said, Abram, time to head west. Go west, young man. He wasn't so young. He was actually 75. How would you like to start a life journey at 75 where you and all that you have is going are going to move hundreds and hundreds of miles through desert and other challenges and through other people's kingdoms and things that don't particularly like you? And you're going to take off at 75. But here we go. So God says in chapter 12, verses one through six. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was in the land then. So here he is with all that he has and only Lot as a relative, and they take off. They go. God says, Abram, I want you to go. Abram says, let's go. Pack it up and move. Let's, let's get on with it. And, and what a beautiful picture. So he's moving to the promised land, and he passes through the promised land. God has him go through it almost as a drive-by, right? We'll call it a walk-by. So he goes through and has a chance to see it. And he walks upon this land. And when he gets to the end of it, God said, you know, that stuff over the last number of days, that's going to be your land. That's going to be the land of your people. That's going to belong to your descendants. Of course, Abraham's going, yeah, I have no descendants. I'm 75 years old. My wife's similar age. She's barren as far as we can tell. What are you talking about? But he, he goes. He doesn't question God at that point. He has his moments later, mind you. So he gets down through the end of this, and the Lord appears to Abram again. In verse 7, we see this. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Nejad. What a picture. God brings him away from his family through this land and says, I'm going to give this to your descendants, of which, of course, you're 75 and there are none. What does Abram do? Abram builds a, he, he builds now a altar. So I lost my brain for a minute. It moves pretty slow, so it's relatively easy to catch up. So he builds him an altar and he worships him. And he calls upon his name. And he, he, he prays before him. He's rejoicing. He's anticipating what God's going to do. He's looking forward to what God's going to do. Even though it's not there, he's trusting in God. He builds an altar 
where God appears to him. Here he proceeds on a ways. He built another altar. He calls upon the name of the Lord. What a beautiful picture this is to think about the fact that he went through all these areas and God was faithful to him and Abram desired to be with God. So he called upon God's name to meet him there. Another spot we see Abraham now. Genesis chapter 21. So now we've already gone through this part. And we'll catch through up through this as we continue on in Genesis. We're going to jump around a little bit. But Genesis 21, verses 22 through 34. Now, we're Abraham is Abraham now. So God has changed his name to Abraham and changed his wife's name to Sarah. And they are going to be moving through some land now. And there's some challenging Areas and there are some battles and they are working through some things and, and challenges associated with that. And, and Abraham had dug some wells and had water in the valley, but then these armies came up of Abimelech and they took away the wells. But now Abraham and Abimelech are meeting together. So in verse 22 it says, Now it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. These guys were amazed at this. It's a different world from them. They served other gods. And their other gods sometimes, well, they really never showed up. But these guys sometimes thought they were showing up. But they watched Abraham and they realized no matter what he did, no matter where he went, this God that he called upon was there with him. God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, he's nervous a little bit. And Bimelech, you have to put the picture and Bimelech has a big army. These guys are tough. They've got all the newest weapons. They have horses. They have people on foot and foot soldiers. These guys are not to be trifled with. And here's Abraham. He's a farmer and a herdsman. He's got no army. Best we can tell, he has no weapons. And this army's afraid of him. So he comes up and says, hey, let's make a deal. How's about you don't hurt us? Right? It's it's kind of like the giant coming up to the midget and saying, please don't hurt me. Please be kind to me. So he says that. So I know that your God's with you. Let's uh, swear swear before me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity This guy's trying to make a deal all the way into his future and his family's future and his family's family's future. He has an inkling. It'd be fun to talk to him and say, what did you see? If you were so concerned, why didn't you come and follow this God of Abraham? I'd love to talk to Abimelech. Or my posterity that according to the kindness that I've shown you, you shall show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor did I hear of it till today. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you do that for? Why did you set those ewes off to the side? What does that mean? 
And Abraham said, you shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well that your servants have taken from me. Therefore, he called the place Beersheba because there the two of them took an oath. And then on verses 33 and 34. So they made a covenant at Beersheba and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. You have to step back and realize the Philistines killed almost everybody who came into their land. And they did it with ease because they were powerful. These guys were tough. They feared only Abraham and God, apparently, and Abraham's flocks and the shepherds. And it's an interesting thing. You, you realize that Abimelech could have said to Abraham, I don't really care if you dug the well. My country. If I want the well, I take the well. But instead, he made a covenant with Abraham. He took the sheep as an outward sign to say, I, you, can, you can be here. You can live in my land. We'll give you plenty of space. Plenty of room. You can kind of go through this. We're not going to fight you because we recognize we can't win. And what did Abraham do? Did Abraham come back to his buddies and say, Yeah, I'm pretty tough. I got these guys all on the ropes. They're all running scared from me. No, he comes back and he, and he goes to the Lord and he calls upon the name of the Lord and praises Him and worships Him. He says, I don't do this on my own. I didn't come upon this because of any strength or great abilities that I have. It's about the name of the Lord. And the Lord is, this, is the one who has put us where we are. We know that, that Abraham and Sarah gave birth to Isaac. And, and Isaac was the, the chosen one to carry on the line of, 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 Abram, or of Adam and eventually Seth. And Abraham continues on. And if we move into Genesis chapter 26, verses 24 and 25, we catch up with Isaac. And we're right back where we are in the same valley that, that Abraham had made the deal with Abimelech to keep his well. You see, when Abraham died, the Philistines went about and they covered up all his wells. It was out of honor. It was so that none of the other Philistines would use those wells. These were, these were something that they, that were special because this was Abraham. And so they covered them all up, but now Isaac's coming back into the land and he's digging the wells back up. And it's causing all sorts of problems. And, and there's these people, the, the shepherds of Jorah are trying to come in and take over the wells again. And, and Isaac's trying to figure out what he's going to do with this. And the Lord appears to him in verses 24 and 25. Actually, let's read on in verses 22. And so they were having problems with these people in Gerar, and he moved on. He moved away from there and dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it, so he named it. Rehoboth, for he said, At the last the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. And he went up there to Beersheba. Remember Beersheba? That was where Abraham planted the tamarisk tree. And he went up there, and the Lord appeared to him and said that, that same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. 
So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. They redug this well that they, the Philistines had covered up. And what a great picture of that. So there was all this strife, but Isaac was trusting and he just kept moving. So he would dig a well, they'd come and take it over. He'd move on, he'd dig another well, he'd dig up another well of his father. They'd come and take that one. And he just kept moving until nobody came. And he said, this is the spot God has for me. We did all that work back here, but that's okay. This is the place that God has for me. And nobody contended towards it, so he stayed there, Rehoboth. No one contended. He's made a space for me. And he went back up to Beersheba, where his father had planted the tamarisk tree. He redug that well, and then he called upon the name of the Lord. The greatness of the Lord had provided this spot. Not that Isaac was big and tough and strong and could beat everybody up and keep them all away, but rather that God had given him a space and he acknowledged that and said, therefore, I will be here because you have given us room here and this is where we will be. We jump ahead into Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 34, we catch up with Moses and, and the Israelites as they're going through the wilderness. And they're, they've, they've, they've exited Egypt. They've moved away after the plagues. And they're on their way through. And, and they're at Mount Sinai. So we're going to catch up here on the second trip up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments or the law. So Moses went up. Remember, he went up the first time he came back and the people were doing some things that weren't so good. And so out of anger, he threw the tablets on the ground. They shattered into lots of pieces. Uh, and, and, and so he's now, God has called him back up. He said, come on back, Moses. So in Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the generations and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He said, now, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. What a great picture as as he's up here and and put, just kind of think for a minute what it might have been like. Makes these stone tablets. I don't know how big they are, but my guess is they're not light. Moses has been around for a bit by this point in time, so he's he's up in age. And and I put a picture of Mount Sinai there. It doesn't look terribly fun to walk up that carrying tablets when you're probably eighty some years old. And uh, 
So here he is. He's going to be climbing up there with these tablets by himself because nobody can come and help him. He gets up to the top and, and the Lord then descends in the cloud and stood there with him. I'd be calling on the name of the Lord too. I'm thinking that I'd be, I'd be there. I probably would have done what he did a little bit later here where he made haste to bow low on the earth and worship. I'd have probably been there the minute the cloud came in because I would have recognized this is, I mean, I, he deserves to open the ground up and swallow me, not, not to keep me and, and use me. But what a beautiful picture. So he, he descends in the cloud and he stands there and Moses calls upon his name. And you can see later when he talks in here about having found favor in his sight and begging and pleading for the people. Because remember, he knows, he remembers the last time when they built the calf. When he was up the first time and they built the calf and they were worshiping the, the idol because they were used to that out of Egypt. And, and he knows that the people of Israel have caused lots of angst or presumably angst for the Lord they they worshipped the calf. They complained about the manna. They they wanted meat. They everything. And and he begs God on their behalf. He pleads. He's on the ground, his head bowed low, and he's pleading with God. Please, God. I know the people are obstinate. I know there's challenges there, but please pardon our iniquity. Please pardon our sin. Please keep us as your possession, as your remnant. That ought to be a prayer we pray every day. That ought to be something that we tape on our mirror in the morning. It should say, Lord, I know I'm obstinate. Lord, I know that I have iniquity in my life. I know that I have sinned. Please, please, Lord, pardon those and continue to call me your own. Please do that. He stood before the Lord and then called upon his name. First Kings, the story of Elijah. We touched base on this a little bit. Last week, and this is a wonderful story. I really, really love this story. And, and I think you could spend weeks on this alone. I, there's just so much. But if we go to 1 Kings chapter 18, join me there. 1 Kings chapter 18. There's a lot of stuff going on here. But to paint the picture, Jezebel and King Ahab. Jezebel has done her very best to wipe out God from the earth. That's what she's done. So they are in the kingdom of Israel. She has killed all of the prophets except for Elijah. And those that her servant, Obadiah, had been able to ferret away in caves. But these guys were in hiding because surely should anybody find out about them, they would be killed. So, so Jezebel was not... Uh, not a favored person by Elijah. Now, Elijah had, had been praying to God to, to stop the rain. And for three and a half years now, it had not rained. Not a single drop on the kingdom. There was great famine going on in there. And God came to Elijah and said to him, this is in the third year now since it had rained, I want you to go back and talk to Ahab. 
and uh, tell him I'm going to send rain. So Elijah did that. He went to show himself. And he went to Obadiah and said, Obadiah arranged this meeting. And Obadiah said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. We've looked all over for you. The king and, and the queen have looked everywhere for you to kill you. Now, what you're going to do is this. See, because you're like a vapor, man. You just, you just, you're here, you're gone. I'm going to go to King Ahab and I'm going to say you're here. But when we come back, you're going to be gone and they're going to kill me. Don't you remember what I've done? Don't you know? Haven't you heard what I've done for the hundred prophets that I have? I've taken care of in the caves. Please don't send me to my death. And Elijah said, don't worry. Go. We'll take care of it. Everything will be fine. So, so he did. They, they went there. And, and so now we pick it up in, in verse 16. Obadiah went to Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. And, and when he came back, his... His words, Ahab's words to Elijah was, is this you, you troubler of Israel? And of course, Elijah very quickly responded, I'm not the troubler of Israel. Uh, I think that's you. Uh, I think you and your father's house have been the troubler because you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the ball. Now, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So bring these guys up. And they all came to do this. And Elijah brought the people near in verse 21. And he says, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. It's very straight and simple here. These people seem to be confused. They would sometimes follow God, most of the time follow Baal, and sometimes just kind of intermix those things. Right? We don't ever do that, though. That's the good news. We never intermix here, this current time, the gods of this world and, and the God of the universe. Well, actually, we do the same thing. We start to interweave them. We start to make them the same, and we'll, we'll claim this and this. So these, we're not all that different from these guys. So you just ask yourself, how long will you contend with that? How long will God contend with you confusing the two? What will that look like? So... He set it up to uh, to bring these guys in and 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 have an offering. So he said, "Bring two oxen. Let them let the prophets of Baal choose theirs. Right? Go ahead, choose the choicest, choose the best. I don't care. Go for it. And and you prepare one, lay it on the wood, and but but don't put a fire under it. And then he'll do the same thing. And then in verse 24, I just love this verse. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord." And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, I like that. That's a good idea. Let's give it a go. Because they're all thinking, there's one of you. There's 450 of us. We're obviously going to win. This will not be very difficult. So choose your ox, he said. Prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they did that. They put it on there. And they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there is no voice and no one answered. And they leapt about the altar which they made. They jumped, they pranced, and nothing happened. Of course, Elijah being probably a lot like me, I think, unfortunately, I see this in here, mocks them. Oh, what's the matter? Is he asleep? Maybe he's on vacation. Could be he's on a journey. 
Uh, you know, we don't know, we don't know where he's at. Maybe he uh, needs to be awakened. Maybe you should scream louder. Certainly if you scream louder, he'll hear you. I can just see Elijah in front of these guys prancing around their altar, starting now to scream and holler to wake up their God. So they cried with a loud voice and they cut themselves, apparently to make them cry louder because that had to hurt, according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And it came about when midday was past that they raved. They raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Because there's no God of theirs. He doesn't exist. It was a figment of their imagination. It was a creation of their hands and their minds. He wasn't there. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So they did that. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. He took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the gods, sons of Jacob, who the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the oxen pieces, and laid it on the wood, and he said, Fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Do it again and again, three times. He just kept pouring water. There's water everywhere. Water fills the trench. And then in verse 36, it comes about time and he and Elijah come near the and he prays, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, today let it be known that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant. And if I that I have done all these things at your word, answer me, O God, answer me that this people may know that you are Lord, art God and that you have turned their heart back again. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust licked up the water that was in the trench. There was nothing left but scorched ground. Wow. Can you imagine what those 450 bleeding prophets of all must have thought? This is the end of the earth. It's the end of the world for them. When the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. They seized the prophets and they killed them all. Elijah said to Ahab, Hurry up and eat. Get in your chariot and get out of here because it's going to rain. For the first time in three and a half years. And we talked a bit about that yesterday. And and so he crouched down and he put his face between his knees and prayed. Elijah did. And he told his servant, go look towards the sea. So he went and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go back seven times. Turned out the seventh time, he said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, go up to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. And we know what happened from there. Clouds boiled in. It started raining. And it was just astounding. Uh, I love the verse 46 here. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and he outran Ahab in his chariot to Jezreel. He got it on. First Chronicles 16, 7 through 10. We have David now. So David's the king and, and they have captured 
they have the Ark of the Covenant. It's been, it, it, they've gotten it back. Remember, it was taken away for a while. Now they've got it back and they build a tent for the Ark of the Covenant and they're going to take care of it. And, and they're excited about this. And they brought the ark in verse chapter 16, verses 1 through 6. And they brought the ark of God and placed it inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished the offering, the burnt offerings and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. He distributed to every one of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread and a portion of meat and a raisin cake. And he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord, even to celebrate and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. Then verse 7 and through 10. Then on that day, David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. And they they sang this this song. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. What a great thing. See, we see this. this, We we start to see the picture now of, of Abraham and Isaac. And David, when they're calling upon the name of the Lord in these particular instances, it's a calling of praise. It's a calling, it's a calling of, of thank you, God, for being so gracious to us. Thank you for taking such good care of us. Thank you for preparing the way for us. And some of the other ones, we saw them now calling and beseeching the name of the Lord. Please, God, have mercy on us. But what a beautiful picture as we call upon the name of the Lord. In the Psalms, there's, there's all over people calling upon the name of the Lord. In 99.6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. So they called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He responded to them. One, verse, Psalm 105.1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. 116.4, Then I called upon the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I beseech you, save my life. That's just a crying out. Save me, God. One sixteen thirteen. I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. One sixteen seventeen. To you I shall have a, shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and to call upon the name of the Lord. It's just this continual calling upon the Lord for glory, for rejoicing, for beseeching of help me, save me, protect me. No matter what they did, what was their response? They called upon the name of the Lord and responded to him. And what it was his response? He heard them. He knew they were there. In Joel chapter 2, Joel was a prophet that uh, we don't know a lot about, but he was, he was prophesying here about the coming of the Lord. And, and in verses 21 through 27 in chapter 2, he's talking about restoring Israel. He's talking about how they've, they've gone through so many difficult times, but it's okay. He's going to restore them to the right place. He's going to restore the vineyards. He's going to restore the olive trees. He's going to restore all these things for them. And he's talking about the beauty of what it's going to look like in the return of the Lord here. In verse 28, it will come about that after this, I will pour out my spirit. So after he's restored the land, he's now going to restore the people. 
I will, come, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see vision. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord come. And it will come about that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord called. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be delivered. It's a preparation now of calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is prophesying Jesus Christ here and calling upon his name. Zephaniah. Now... Zephaniah is calling, he's a prophecy here, calling God's people to humility and righteousness in the face of the Lord's anger. God's not pleased with the people. This is the point where he's trying to bring them back, his remnant back for him. And in verse 7, chapter 3, he says, I said, surely will you revere me, accept instructions, so her dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed concerning her. This is Israel. But they were eager to corrupt their deeds. And then in verses 8, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, my all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. For then I will give to the people, those that remain, I will give purified lips, to all of them that may call upon my name, the name of the Lord, to serve me shoulder to shoulder. I'm going to clean out the riffraff, guys. It's going to happen. In the end of times, the riffraff's going to go away. For those that are mine, I will purify your lips so that when you call upon me in those end days and you stand shoulder to shoulder... You will see, you'll have the opportunity to see the Lord God in his, all his glory. Paul talks in Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He tells us again what it looks like and what it's going to be like in the end. He's, Paul, he says, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord and Jesus Christ. He showed the distinction. Paul's writing here to the believers in Corinth, and he's sending grace and peace to them through his God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, what sets you apart is that you've called upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So what Joel was pointing towards, Paul is pointing out. That makes sense? Joel was saying, in the future, this is going to happen. Paul says, it's here and it's now. For those of you who have called upon the name of the Lord, you, the believers, you I'm writing to, so what does it all look like? You know, as we wrap up here, it's been so fun to read through and see people's responses to calling upon the name of the Lord. And as we move into the New Testament, it distinctly changes the flavor into the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's obvious that the calling upon the name of Jesus Christ is what brings salvation. 
before Jesus came and died for us, he was still here. Jesus didn't start to exist at the inception of, of at the conception. He existed before. He was around all the time. So before we don't see him isolated because he was part of the Godhead. But now in the New Testament, we start to see him isolated out. And, and we become heirs of the kingdom because we call upon the name of the Son. And the Son is our intercessor between he and the Father. He was the perfect sacrifice. You see, he had to be perfect because we couldn't make it work. And it couldn't be something that we offered up our sacrifices to on an altar because that just wasn't good enough. We couldn't ever bring enough. So God put His Son on the altar. And when we call upon His name, He then writes paid in full on our iniquities and our sin. So when Moses was crying out to God saying, Please, I know they're obstinate. Please forgive them their iniquities. Please forgive them their sin. Please keep them as your possession. He was looking forward to the Christ coming. Because we're here now and we can say, Please God, forgive my obstinance. Please God, forgive my iniquity. Please God, forgive my sin. I lay it all before the foot of the cross. I want to be yours. Zechariah. In verse, in chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, really, really looks upon this again. In the whole land declares the Lord, two thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be left alive. There's a remnant. And I will put this third into the fire. That doesn't seem like necessarily a good thing to be part of that third anymore, does it? Sound like he's going to cut off two thirds and they're going to perish. And the third I'm just going to throw in the fire. Sounds like they're all going to me. But if you read the rest, it's beautiful. I'll put them in the fire and I'm going to refine them as one refined silver. And I'm going to test them as gold is tested. And what will we do? Because that's us. We're that part of that third. We're part of that. If you have claimed Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's you. You're in the fire being tested and purified And what will our response be to the testing and the purification? We're going to call upon the name of the Lord. And we will say, I identify with you. I want to be with you. And God will say, you are mine. I put my seal upon you. Last week, I talked about the fork in the road. And I want to clarify something. I think it's important. It was brought up great community group. And I think it's important we understand this. We are grafted branches to the tree of life. When you claim Christ as your savior. So as we look at this tree over here. And, and the lineage of from Adam to Christ. We're grafted into that as believers. We weren't born into it. We're grafted into it. And. And Christ accepts us as part of his family. God accepts us as part of his family because of the intercession of Christ. Before you claim Christ as your Savior, before you know him as your Savior, 
you're a branch out here. When you claim him as your savior, you're grafted into that main trunk. We have all the sustenance of God in that. And we're right there. And when I talked about two paths, I want to make it clear that we, that we have two choices to choose paths, at least. We walk up and God says, will you choose me or will you choose the world? If we choose him, we're grafted onto the trunk. We're his forever. You can't cut us off. You can't pull us off. You can't get us off. We're there. Immediately, completely ingrown into the trunk of, of God. But even in that, we have a choice every day to decide will we be righteous and holy or will, we, or will we step towards the world? We can't get away from the trunk. We're part of the trunk. But we can still make bad decisions. You see, in the line of Seth, Enosh, when Enosh was born, they began to call upon the name of the Lord. The seven generations of Cain went into allow evil to engulf them. But when Enosh was born, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. But you know what? We know that it didn't last. Even in that line from Seth to Enosh, from the line from Enosh to Noah was seven generations. In seven generations, the thoughts of men had become evil continually, constantly. Only eight were found to be righteous enough to take a chance on. The line of Seth started down the right path, but people started to peel off. They came to the first crossroads to choose God or the world. They chose the world. So as you leave today, you have to decide, where are you? Are you at that first fork? Are you right here? And you have the opportunity to follow the world's way or God's way? Choose God. He wins in the end. We know that. If you're down this path of God's, you get up every morning, you have to choose, how will I represent him today? I'm his. There's a big sign on me that says belongs to God. Whether I can see it or not. The question is, do I highlight that sign or do I, to cover, do I try to cover it up? As I walk, do I try to hide that from the world so they think I'm theirs? Or do I walk, do I let it shine? So all the world to see at all times, knowing as, as Zachariah said, when you do that, when you shine like that and let the world see you, you will be purified By the end of it, you will be tested and purified. You're going to smell a little smoky, but you're going to be perfect. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word, for your truth, and for for giving us a chance to get to know you better through it. What a blessing it is to read about the, the men and women of the Bible. And to know, Lord, you're still about your work of purifying and perfecting. You're still about allowing people to shine you and to shine just the marvelousness of your kingdom. So, Lord, would you help us to be the most brilliant people possible as we walk out of this building today and enter the mission field? Lord, will you please just help us to glow with a glow that is unmistakably you? And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.